was a long eight weeks, I guess. There was a basically seven weeks of recovery. I'm still recovering, so I won't be running any races anytime soon. Uh, but I really appreciate and am thankful uh, for our elder team, and especially for Wes Crago, who filled the pulpit uh, all those many, low those many days, Wes, and uh, very thankful. I just want to remind you what a blessing it is to have spiritual leadership who is able to handle God's word accurately. One of the qualities of an elder is that in First Titus, or in Titus chapter 1, verse 8, says he must hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teachings so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. And uh, that's one of the great values of an elder team who is willing to teach and share God's word. And so I am deeply indebted to them and thankful to God uh, for their willingness to carry on with the task of spiritual oversight of this fellowship. And so uh, you need to be very thankful for them, and I'm very thankful for Wes. Every Sunday when I knew he was going to preach, I would send him a text just before saying, uh, praying for you, preach the word, exclamation mark. I thought about doing that this morning. Wouldn't that have been funny? But I just, you know... It's one of those do unto others kind of things. So, so I decided I better not do that. So, but we were very, uh, I'm thankful uh, for Wes and for his faithfulness in teaching God's word. I think he has a new, a renewed or newer understanding of the relentless nature that Sunday is always coming. And for one who teaches and preaches God's word, Sunday is always coming. And it's a great privilege. And uh, so we are thankful for you and thankful that you come and that you were part of this fellowship. We're thankful for our guests here this morning also as you've come together. Um, one of the things that I learned uh, in my time off, in fact, I spent so much time in my recliner chair that I had to have that surgically removed from my backside. Uh, I used to think that uh, sitting in a recliner all day would be just, just heaven, but it's not. It's the actual opposite, H-E double hop hockey sticks kind of opposite. Uh, but God is faithful, and uh, one of the things I learned, though, is uh, there's a difference between rest and patience, rest and waiting, okay? And obviously, those of you who have suffered some physical difficulties or problems know what it means to wait through the healing process. And one of the things I recognized about myself is that, uh, and my wife would amen this very loudly, is that I have those moments of impatience. Uh, I don't know about you, but I can be very impatient with my circumstances, with other people, uh, with where I'm at sometimes. And uh, so that was one of the lessons I learned, and it's a, it's a convicting lesson. And uh, it's one that I've recognized as a lifelong journey in a way. And, uh, you know, it's, it's the old joke about don't pray for patience or uh, the Lord will really test you on that one. Uh, but uh, I recognize that there's some impatience in my life. One of my favorite writers, uh, his name is uh, Henry Nowen. You may be familiar with him. He was actually, I think, a Roman Catholic and uh, a very spiritual person, wrote a lot of books. In fact, the joke is, is that Henry Nowen never, never had an unpublished thought because everything he, he thought about was published. But uh, in one of his books called Sabbatical Journeys, he relates uh, a, a story about some friends of his who happened to be trapeze artists. Wouldn't that be cool to have friends who are trapeze artists? I mean, 
what a neat thing. But uh, their name was the Flying Rudellas, the Flying Rudellas. And no one writes that there's a special relationship between a flyer and a catcher on a trapeze. The flyer is the one that lets go of the bar, and the catcher is the other one who catches the flyer. As the flyer swings high above the crowd on the trapeze, the moment comes when he must let go. He arcs out into the air. His job is to remain as still as possible in flight and wait for the strong hands of the catcher to pluck him from the air. No one goes, uh, Henry Nolan goes on to write, one of the flying Rodellas told him that the flyer must never try to catch the catcher. The flyer must wait in absolute trust. The catcher will catch him, but he must wait. Would you classify yourself as a person who does well at waiting, as a patient person, as one who is at rest, no matter your circumstances, no matter the situations you find yourself in, no matter what life throws at you day to day? That's the question I've struggled with the past several weeks, and that's why we're taking just a short break here from Galatians. I'm thankful that Wes continued in our study of Galatians, but we're going to hit the pause button here today in Galatians. We'll pick it up next week in chapter 4. But in a way, we're really going to rehearse all of Galatians in one psalm. If you have your copy of Scripture, turn to the book of Psalms and the 130th Psalm, Psalm 130. And that's where we will be looking today. And we'll be talking about this whole issue of what it means to truly rest and be patient and to find a way of waiting through those difficulties in life that we have no little or no control over. One thing I realized about patience in my reading and about uh, this impatience uh, is the fact that impatience is really a form of unbelief. Have you thought about that? Impatience is really a form of unbelief. It's what we begin to feel when we start to doubt the wisdom in God's timing or his goodness or his guidance. It springs up in our hearts when the road to what we consider our goals and our desires and what our life should be gets all muddied up or strewn with boulders or perhaps there's obstacles in the way. This battle with impatience can be a little skirmish over a long wait in the checkout line. Have you ever been there where you're in the checkout line, you're in a hurry, and the guy in front of you decides at the last minute to write a check and then balance his checkbook while he's waiting? And you've got your, your card out, and you're just going to get out of there. Uh, perhaps it's as small as that, or maybe it's a major combat over a physical problem, a disease, a circumstance that knocks you down in life, and maybe even destroys some of your dreams. Uh, we often think that the opposite of impatience is a glib and supernatural or, or, or superficial denial of frustration. But that's not really it at all, as we're going to see in this psalm, in Psalm 130. The opposite of impatience is a deepening, ripening, peaceful willingness either to wait for God where you are in the place of obedience or to persevere at the pace he allows you to travel down the road of life. To wait in his place or go at his pace is key to understanding some of that issue with impatience. So if you battle with impatience in life, with the inability to rest or to wait when you want to move ahead, 
Psalm 130 is for you. It's a battle against unbelief, and believe me, it is a battle. I've been able to focus on that. And it's merely not just a personality issue. It is bigger than that. As I said, it is a form of unbelief. Patience in doing the will of God is not, option, is not an optional virtue in the Christian life. And the reason it's not optional is because faith is not an optional virtue either. And they're listed together. Patience and well-doing is the fruit of faith, and impatience is the fruit of unbelief. And so the battle against impatience is a battle against unbelief. And so the chief weapon is the word of God applied by the Holy Spirit of God to the life of the Christian. Let me pray as we begin. Almighty Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us this day of life. Remind us even today of your great sovereignty, of your power, of your control over all things with the ultimate goal that it is for your glory and for the good of your people. And Lord, we are weak individuals in many, many ways, frail in our frame, and yet, Lord, you are so faithful to carry us through day by day. And for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a future and a hope in him. Almighty God, you unto you are all hearts open. All of our desires are known, and from you no secrets are hidden. Today I ask that you'd cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that you would apply your word that we may perfectly love you and worship and worthily magnify your holy name. For it's in Jesus Christ's name alone that we pray. Amen and amen. Well, there's two related words uh, in Scripture, in the Old Testament especially, especially in the Psalms. There's the word translated rest. And then there's the word translated wait, or patience, we might call it. Uh, And there's many, many uh, passages on resting. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him, Psalm 37, 7. And uh, rest seems to be kind of an inactive kind of thing. In fact, I've told you before that uh, my practice is every night when I lay my head on my pillow, I try to just verbally or mentally say, Lord, I'm resting in you. All the days, troubles, activities, glories, everything, rest in God's hand and sleep well. Uh, There's kind of that idea of it's a passive position, if you will. Psalm 55 said, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. The psalmist there is desiring that kind of rest. Uh, Psalm 62, On God my salvation and my glory, rest. Psalm 116.7, return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. And so there's this idea of resting, of almost like a passive, like a child waiting and resting in place. But there's also the word wait. And uh, I don't know about you, but I'm not good at waiting. And that's where impatience can spring up in my life. Uh, Eugene Peterson defines waiting for the Christian this way, and I quote him, waiting is vigilance plus expectation. It is wide awake to God. Waiting is vigilance plus expectation. It is wide awake to God. I printed out uh, all the passages in Psalms uh, and Proverbs that include the word wait, and here are a few of them. Uh, For you are the God of my salvation, Psalm 25, for you I wait all day. 
Psalm 25, 21, let integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. We start to get the idea that it is not a passive thing, waiting, but it is an active thing. Even though we may not be moving to action, it is an active thing. Psalm 33, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Psalm 37, rest in the Lord. There's, there's the word rest. And wait patiently for him. Do not fret. Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined my ear and heard my cry. Even the prophet Jeremiah in his great work, Lamentations, in Lamentations 3.25, he says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. So this whole idea of waiting is vigilance plus expectation. Perhaps you're tired today and I think of here we are in the new year and and we've had quite a year in 2016, a year that I don't want to repeat personally, but uh, here we move into a new year, and we don't know what it holds. We don't know what the future holds. As Wes pointed out, we have a new administration coming on, Inauguration Day, and as he said, half are happy, half are not happy, and so we go. Uh, I was reading a great quote this morning, actually, about Christianity and politics And uh, the writer said uh, that uh, when you try to mix Christianity with politics, it's like trying to mix ice cream with manure. It ruins the ice cream and doesn't do anything for the manure. And I wish I could uh, validate who said that. I will look that up. But I thought uh, that is key because uh, I think part of the movement we have is we're trying to mix too much Christianity with politics in this day and age. But anyway, we are facing uh, probably great challenges as a nation and as a people. And perhaps in your own life, you're facing great challenges this morning. And I just want you to know that uh, God knows all about this. I am strong on the sovereignty of God, which means he is in control of all things at all times for all people, ultimately for his glory and for the good of his people. And oftentimes that is tested as we look because we have a very limited, finite view of what life is about. And so we go to his word and we see what God is doing. Psalm 130 is, uh, if you notice, if you have those little headings below where the number is, uh, it's a song of ascents. And it's in the middle of a bunch of songs of ascents. And a song of ascent means simply as the pilgrim, the Jewish pilgrims were walking up to Jerusalem because it was always up. It was at a high point in Israel. And if you've been there, you know that uh, it's a steep climb up to Jerusalem, and they would go on their pilgrimages to worship at the temple as they were commanded as a people. And as they ascended Mount Zion, as they ascended Mount Moriah, as they ascended up to Jerusalem, they would sing to each other. And remember, the Psalms are Hebrew poetry. They're not like poetry in the Western world. They're a little different. But they're beautiful expressions of these songs, and typically they were sung, especially the Song of Ascents. They were put to music, and the pilgrims would probably antiphonally sing them. If you were with a group, if we were a group of pilgrims, half of us would sing the first two verses. The other half would sing the next two verses back and forth, and it would echo down those canyons as they walked up to Jerusalem. Martin Luther loved Psalm 130. In fact, the great reformer called it one of the Pauline Psalms because it is like the Apostle Paul wrote this psalm. Uh, it, is, it offers forgiveness by grace through faith apart from human works. Remember, uh, Martin Luther was changed dramatically 
uh, by the book of Galatians about salvation by grace through faith plus nothing. And Martin Luther's life was changed and he became the great reformer in the 1600s. But in fact, uh, that is one of the best expositions in the Old Testament of the way of salvation by grace through faith based on Christ's atonement. Even though Jesus Christ had not come yet, the psalmist was writing about salvation by grace through faith. And this is really a summary statement of the book of Galatians, written ahead of time. And we see this here, and we will see it. In fact, it's such an important psalm that John Owen, who was a 17th century Puritan, he wrote a 400-page book on these eight verses. There are eight verses, four stanzas of Hebrew poetry. 400 pages. And when you do your Bible study, think about that. Have I really exhausted this passage? Do I know it all? And think of John Owens. And, by the way, 300 of those pages were on verse 4 alone. I have not read that yet. But uh, all I can attribute that to is John Owen didn't have a TV. He didn't watch the Seahawks or any of that, okay? But we come to this passage. Let me read the whole psalm for you, and then we'll take each stanza by itself. Four stanzas, eight verses. Let me read it for you. Follow along as I read. Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Heavenly Father, again we approach you, and what a magnificent portion of your word. And we pray today that your Holy Spirit would teach each one of us that we would be changed because of this encounter with your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. In verses 1 through 2, it begins, notice, out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. The depths here is the picture of drowning. It is the picture of being underwater without any oxygen. For the Israelites, they were fearful of the sea. They were not a seafaring nation. And primarily, it goes back in their history, a fear of the ocean. In fact, the same word is used to describe Jonah in the great beast in the ocean. While he's in the stomachs, in the depths, it's a metaphor, a picture of death. And so here we are waiting in the depths of death. It has everything to do with sin, everything to do with sin. I was thinking about that whole picture of drowning, and twice in my life have I felt like I was literally physically drowning. Once, interestingly, they all both occurred when I was 18, 19 years old. Does that say something about my decision-making capability then? Uh, but I was at Lion Lake, which is up by Hungry Horse Reservoir in Montana, and swimming, and it's a very deep lake, and I remember getting in trouble. And I remember looking up, and it seemed like there was about 15 feet, and I could barely see any light above me. And uh, I struggled, and obviously I made it. I didn't drown, uh, but that was a near-drowning experience. Another one occurred over in Whitefish Lake in our hometown, swimming out to the diving dock and then coming back, and I was exhausted, and again, feeling like I couldn't make it, and going underwater and gulping air and 
and, and water, and, and, uh, but I did make it. But this is even more. This is a place where you cannot save yourself. The psalmist is saying, I am in the depths. I'm crying to you, Lord. Hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. He's crying out to God. It's those moments in our lives where there is no hope or seemingly no hope, where there is no ability, whether our skill, whether our intellect, whatever it is, our resources are exhausted. There is nothing left. And this is where the psalmist is. And this is the people reminding themselves that because of our sin, there is no hope. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so the psalmist is using the picture of the sea here. And then he moves into the courtroom in forgiveness. We wait in guilt for forgiveness in verses three and four. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Who could stand? How true is that? And the picture here is the fact that sin is the problem and that the psalmist is seeking forgiveness and those pilgrims on the pilgrim way and for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ or anybody, we need that forgiveness which God gives freely. How terrible it would be if God simply marked it. Notice that word mark, uh, marked our sins and expected uh, that God would just keep a record of that. Nobody could stand before God. Paul wrote about that in Romans chapter 3. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have turned together. All they together have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. All of mankind stands condemned before a righteous, holy God. The word mark means to observe, to keep a record. And God, if he is truly sovereign, if he's not, he's not God anymore, but he is sovereign. The Bible declares it. He could keep those marks. But look at verse 4 with me. Look at that first word. But there is forgiveness with you that you might be feared. That is the good news. There is forgiveness, the gospel. But with you there is forgiveness. That is a wonderful, wonderful phrase there is forgiveness you know we go through life and uh, uh, some of us perhaps have broken relationships and you may not find forgiveness with other people your husband or even your wife will not forgive you if you've wronged him or her your children may not forgive you your co-workers may not forgive you and I think many of us struggle with even forgiving ourselves But there is one who can and will forgive us. If you struggle with the issue of forgiveness in your life, you need to write down the words, Our God is a forgiving God. He will not remember our transgressions against us. He will remove them as far as the east is from the west if we ask him for his mercy. Remember Moses in Exodus chapter 34 asked to see God and received a defining revelation of who God is, what he is like, what his uh, undeniable character is, where it says there in Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. What a wonderful word to Moses. What a wonderful word and joyful good news to anybody that God is a forgiving God. Very briefly, let me mention four things about God's forgiveness. First of all, God's forgiveness is inclusive. It's not exclusive. It is inclusive. 
Verse 4 does not say there is forgiveness for this particular sin, but not that one. No, uh, he sets no limits at all. It says there is forgiveness. Forgiveness for any sin by anybody. Murder, adultery, lying, stealing, coveting, failing to keep the Lord's day, taking the name of God in vain, whatever it may be. There is forgiveness with God. You may be totally ignorant of the Bible. You may not think of theology at all, and yet there is forgiveness with God. You need to remember that. Secondly, God's forgiveness is for now. The translators have used the verb is. It's a present tense verb, which means there is forgiveness. The force of the sentence, though, is even stronger in the original Hebrew, where there is no verb at all. The Hebrew simply says, with you, forgiveness. What a wonderful, powerful phrase about forgiveness. Thirdly, God's forgiveness is for those who want it. For those who want it. It is there, but you must ask God for it and trust him to give it to you. The writer of this psalm is confessing sin. He's not covering it up. He's not pretending that he doesn't need forgiveness. He is asking God for mercy, and he has no claim on God. He is believing, and when he says, with you there is forgiveness, thousands of people in churches across the world quote the Apostles' Creed every Sunday. And one of the lines in the Apostles' Creed is, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And uh, yet, do they actually believe that? Do they actually claim that? Many don't even know what the word means, let alone receiving the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So God's forgiveness is inclusive. It is present tense for now. It is for those who want it. And fourthly, God's forgiveness leads to godly living. It changes us when you truly grasp the fact that because I am a sinner, God has forgiven me. It changes how I view all of life. Uh, There are some people who object to salvation by grace through faith alone. In fact, some people call it cheap grace. And yet, God forgives us of anything. And they're worried that we're going to keep on sinning. We're going to go, uh, if we're given uh, liberty and grace, we're going to go to licentiousness. That's what Galatians is about. Paul is battling that very concept. And yet, the fact is that God's forgiveness leads to godly living. Forgiveness we're talking about does not lead to license, as some suppose, but to a heightened reverence for God. Notice the end of verse 4. Verse 4, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. There's a reverence. There's a heightened understanding about the character of God. Remember Romans 8.1 says, for those who are in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're not fearing for our eternal well-being, but there is an awesomeness about this supreme being who can forgive sins. Nobody can do that, really, except God alone. Uh, There was a a family here. Many of you remember Frank and Betty Horrell. Uh, Frank uh, was a great guy and uh, passed away a number of years ago. Uh, And I used to love to go over to their house at 4 o'clock in the afternoon because they always had great coffee and cookies at 4 in the afternoon. And it was a fun time. I do miss that. But if you walk over to the cemetery and look at uh, Frank's grave, on his headstone he has these words, Live for Jesus, have few regrets. Live for Jesus, have few regrets. God's forgiveness leads to a changed life, to holy living. This issue of waiting, 
Notice in verses 5 and 6, he uses the word wait three different times, at least in my translation. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. Lucy Shaw, who is an author, writes these words about waiting. She says, I'm an impatient, restless person. Slowing down and waiting seem like a waste of time. Yet waiting seems to be an inevitable part of the human condition. She refers to Henry Nowen, who I referred to earlier. Waiting is a period of learning. The longer we wait, the more we hear about him for whom we are waiting. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of Romans chapter 8 resonates with this. Waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. That comes out of the message. During a time of waiting, God is vibrantly at work within us. In verses 5 through 6, we move from the courtroom of confession into the city walls, from darkness into light. So we are waiting for the coming of our Savior, for this intimate relationship. Notice in verse 5 what the key is. I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. I hope. It's not wishful thinking. It is hope in a given, confirmed situation. God is the object of our hope. And in verse 6, he illustrates it. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. He's referring to the secured fortress of a city which had night watchmen. And the night watchmen were there to protect against the enemies or a surprise attack. And they would long for the morning so they could see. They would long for it. Waiting for the Lord in the Old Testament is a way of describing the opposite of impatience. Waiting for the Lord is the opposite of running ahead of the Lord, and it's opposite of bailing out on the Lord. It is staying at your appointed place while he says stay, or going at his appointed pace while he says go. It's not impetuous, and it's not despairing. And so the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. And that waiting is an activity which we find difficult, and yet when we reflect that our hope is in God himself and his sovereignty, we can wait through the midst of adversity. There are times when we have struggles with that. I was reading about uh, Lake Okeechobee down in Florida. It's the 10th largest lake in in the United States, actually. And in 2007, uh, Florida experienced a great drought. And the shoreline of Lake Okeechobee, too many syllables for me, uh, receded uh, some places up to a, a mile in, and uh, the archaeologists and others found uh, artifacts going back 500 years or more. They found pottery, pottery shards, arrowheads, weaving tools, and all sorts of things that gave clues to the people who had gone before. They even found a paddle boat that ferried tourists that had sunk in 1928. All of those items, all those treasures had rested just beneath the surface uh, for many, many years, and it took a drought to bring them out and bring them, uh, expose them. You know, spiritual droughts, if you're in one, are not fun, yet they seem to be part of the Christian life. But trials and moments of doubt during uh, times of drought, during personal drought, can reveal many things about us. And hopefully they reveal the treasures that God is working in and through us through these difficult times. In verses 7 through 8, not only do we wait in darkness for light, but we wait in bondage for freedom. In verse 7, we see the loving kindness of redemption. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, with him is abundant redemption. 
Notice that the psalmist moves from personal pronouns to now addressing people around him, his nation. And he is visiting the slave market, if you will, because that's the redemption portion of our salvation, is God has bought us out of the slave market with Jesus Christ. Loving kindness is the Hebrew word hesed, which closely proximates the New Testament word grace. And he's a redeemer from all of our iniquities. In verse 8, he will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. The Israelites had no hope. They had no guarantee other than the fact that there was going to be a Messiah, a redeemer. They could not free themselves from the bondage they were in. And neither can anybody here today do that. Only the Lord Jesus Christ. God will, uh, his will for us is to wait for him, be patient, rest in his character, and claim his promises. Isaiah 40, verse 31 reads, Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God is faithful in what he does. There's a story that comes out of Spain. It's an old Spanish story of a father and a son who became estranged. They had argued, and the son ran away, and the father set off to find him. He searched for months, but to no avail. And finally, in a last desperate effort to find his son, the father put an ad in a Madrid newspaper, and the ad read, quote, Dear Paco, meet me in front of the newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you, your father, unquote. When he got there on that Saturday, it is reported that 800 Pacos showed up looking for forgiveness and love from their father. And, you know, each person really is a Paco. If we are estranged from the father, uh, we need his forgiveness and his grace and mercy. And today, as we observe the Lord's table, that is why we do that, is to remind ourselves of what Jesus Christ has done for us. If the men who are going to serve would come and be seated here in the front. This will be our first communion together in 2017. It's a time of remembrance, a time to memorialize what Jesus Christ has done for us, particularly his death, burial, and resurrection. What Jesus Christ has done for us in the past, what he's doing for us now, and what he will do for us. I'm constantly amazed that I think of the package of salvation through grace by faith, through Christ alone, that Jesus Christ died for me. He rose again, gaining the victory over sin and death. And now in this time, while I'm still on this earth, he intercedes for me. He is my advocate in heaven because, believe it or not, I still sin. And that's why he is called the great high priest. What does a priest do? He intercedes for his people. And that's what Jesus Christ does. He intercedes for us. He is our advocate. It is probably, in my mind, the strongest argument for the security of a believer's salvation Because if we could lose our salvation, that would mean that Jesus had failed in his intercession and advocacy. Can Jesus do that? No, he is all-powerful. He has paid the complete price. He does it perfectly. And then he's preparing a place in heaven for us. So when we are glorified, like Fred just left us on the 27th of December, he went to heaven. And uh, he is glorified now. He is with Jesus Christ who has prepared a place for him in heaven. But we remember these things as we come. In fact, in the central passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 for the Lord's Supper, the Apostle Paul gives the instructions to the church 
And we carry on these instructions today as an ordinance, if you will. And he says, For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he's betrayed took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. And then twice he says, Do this in remembrance of me. And that's why we believe that these are memorial uh, objects here. They help us remember. They're very common elements, the bread and the cup. And as we partake together, it's a unified demonstration that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do in the days to come. And so it says that Jesus prayed, and we follow this pattern this morning. I'm going to ask Wes Crago to give thanks for the bread this morning. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is very clear testimony of our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as the result of works, so that no one may boast. 
Verse 10 goes on to say, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Jesus, in that first Lord's Supper recorded in Luke 22, and in the passage here in 1 Corinthians, that he broke the bread, distributed it, said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us remember the great salvation we have. The historical narrative goes on to say that in the same way he took the cup after that Lord's Supper. I'm going to ask Dave Gossett to give thanks for the cup this morning. We hold this small portion of 
juice in this cup and we'll partake in a moment uh, just to remind you that our forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ is inclusive, it is complete, it is present, it is not something in the past, but it is ongoing. Remember, he is our interceder and our advocate. He is offering it to anyone who will take it. And fourthly, it changes our lives. And Paul said, uh, as he recorded the words of Jesus, he said, Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. That was the unconditional promise of the Redeemer. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us remember our Savior together. Paul records what we've just accomplished together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we have acted together, proclaiming to the world, whether the world sees it or not, that uh, the angels in heaven know that we are a people of faith awaiting his return. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this Lord's table and for this time together. Thank you that you are the mighty God and that we can trust you. For it's in Jesus' powerful name I pray. Amen.